Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. I incorrectly told Bill that this passage should end verse 32 in your worship guide. I'm actually going to read to the end of chapter 11, which is verse 36. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah, or what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left. And they seek my life, but what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Imagine that you are ten. You are in the fourth grade, and you have worked hard all year to achieve the perfect attendance award. You have attended school through chills and fever. You have made your family go a day late to the holiday family gathering so that you would not jeopardize a day of school through travel. You have threatened your cousin who is to be married that if she scheduled her wedding during the school year, you would not attend. You've sacrificed everything. And now at the end of the year, you are in the home stretch. And there's people have dropped off like flies throughout the year. Only Ben Johnson really hung on. He was a contender, but during spring break in Mexico, he contracted dengue fever, and you thank God for small miracles. It's just you. You alone have achieved the perfect attendance award. Except that in the 11th hour, the unimaginable happens. Todd Gitlin moves to town. And though he did not need to start school at the end of the year, who starts school at the end of the year, but he had those kinds of parents. And so he spent the last nine days of the school year attending. And your teacher, Mrs. I've Got Oatmeal for Brains, decided that since he attended every day of his very long school year, he should get a perfect attendance award. Are you kidding? The injustice, the inhumanity, how does nine days of perfect attendance, not even two full weeks compared to 180 days of perfect Attendance. Everything is wrong with the world. And though we may uh, chuckle at that analogy, there is something a bit similar to what is going on for Paul and Israel. You can imagine how a 10-year-old would bristle at that situation. You might even be sympathetic to the bristling of the 10-year-old in that situation. Now imagine that you're part of a people who have at least... In one sense, labored to be faithful to God. You've been set apart. You've been chosen. You've received the secret manual of how to honor Him and live according to His will in this world. And only in the eleventh hour of salvation has actually come to the world are all these Gentiles allowed to sit down at the table. And you think injustice, inhumanity. What in the world is God doing? How does this compare to what we have done and who we have been, your entire identity is on the chopping block as being God's specially chosen person. And so it's difficult to understand in the first century what God is up to, what exactly is happening. And we've said that this is what Paul is wrestling with with the church in Rome that would have been comprised of Jew and Gentiles and wrestling with this question, has God really said yes to all of his promises in the arrival the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul has said, yes, absolutely he has. But the question becomes decidedly more personal 
as we come to chapter 11. You know, in one sense, chapters 9 through 11 are is the heart of Romans, and it's a particularly difficult section of Scripture. And as we weigh in, uh, I would just present to you this morning, really getting up before you and not knowing entirely, how do you, what do you say about Romans 11? I don't know. I'm going to say a few things, obviously, but it's one of those passages of Scripture that is, is fairly perplexing. It raises as many questions as it answers. And so in the midst of that, uh, what I have walked away with trying to remind myself and what I seek then to remind you of this morning is that you are not God, so stop trying to be. You are not God, so stop trying to be. How do we get that, or how do we see that from chapter 11 in the book of Romans? Well, what is this personal question that I've raised that Paul begins with? He's wrestled with, is Jesus really the fulfillment to the promises? He's been arguing yes. But then the question becomes, and this is perhaps the real question that's been looming all along, is, well, if Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, and all of Israel, or most of Israel, is rejecting Jesus, then has God rejected his people? Right? That's a real question. That's a very personal question. So since, God, you've made these promises, if you've fulfilled them, then why aren't you allowing Israel to see it? If you're not allowing Israel to see it and Israel is going astray, how do we understand your love? You don't seem very loving anymore. You seem kind of nasty. And this is what we're wrestling with in Hebrew, or in Romans chapter uh, 11. Has Israel been rejected? And of course, Paul says, by no means. Quick answer, he absolutely wants to rule it out of hand. And he turns to the most interesting of places to begin to make his case, to a story out of the life of the prophet Elijah. Now, there are a number of places that Paul could have turned to explore um, what's called remnant theology, that even though God's people are turning away, God is preserving a certain number for himself to make sure that his plan, his story, his, his, uh, his execution of redemption can continue to move forward. Right? God must preserve a remnant for that to move forward. And so he could have turned to a number of places, but he turns to uh, a story about Elijah. And Elijah uh, was a prophet in this particular section of Kings. He's citing King, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19. And Elijah has made King Ahab and Queen um, Jezebel very angry, and she has threatened that uh, before the day is out, she is going to kill Elijah. Elijah's pretty scared. He goes on the run. He uh, flees for an entire day out into the wilderness. And uh, God shows up to him and says, you know, Elijah, what are you doing? And um, Elijah says this to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's a bleak picture. Actually, when uh, Elijah goes out into the wilderness, he asks simply to die. He's done. He's empty. He's hopeless. He uh, sees uh, God's people walking away. He sees the, uh, Israel's enemies being victorious, uh, false Israelites being victorious. 
and, he, uh, and he's very ready to lay down the gauntlet and says, listen, I've been faithful up to this point, God. You haven't really come through. I haven't seen you deliver on your promises. Can we just call it a day? That's a pretty bleak place to be. Have you ever been to the point where you felt like saying that to God? Listen, I've been faithful. I haven't really seen you show up. I'm tired of looking under every rock to understand and see your love. Let's just call it a day. God sends an angel and meets him. He feeds him. He offers him water. He allows him to sleep and then feeds him and offers him water again. And Elijah goes to a cave in which, again, he articulates this protest before God. God shows up and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What a, you know, what a funny way to paint a story. God knows what he's doing there. Why, what are you doing here? And Elijah again makes his protest. But as you heard read in the Old Testament reading, God, this, this uh, series of events happens. He, he tells Elijah to go to the edge of the cave and to stand on the cliff. And this great wind comes through that's knocking down rocks and tearing things apart. Uh, but it says God wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, there's an earthquake. Right? Ground shaking. And it says, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after which there's this great fire that passes through. It says, but God wasn't in the fire. And then there is this smaller sound, this more humble sound, from something of a whisper. And that's where God actually is. That's where Elijah finds God in the midst of his frustration. And as God meets Elijah in the midst of that whisper, he, he tells him what he's going to do. He says, this is how things are going to move forward. I'm going to remedy these things in this way, and I'm also going to give you help. It's time to call an assistant who ultimately will take over for you. So he offers relief. And he says, uh, and by the way, I'm preserving the 7,000. Right? He thinks he's alone. Elijah says, I alone am left. And God says, no, there's 7,000 who haven't bent the knee to Baal. And they're going to be preserved, and this is how I'm continuing to work in the story, even though you can't see it and you don't understand fully what's going on, this is the big picture. And Paul, I think, unquestionably identifies with uh, Elijah. In a sense, um, as Paul is running around the Mediterranean world, as he's explaining or arguing that Jesus is indeed the fulfillment of God's promises, that he is the Messiah, and most of Israel is rejecting his message Paul must have been able to identify with what Elijah is expressing in the midst of this story. The frustration, the inability to see the big picture. And so Paul, in Romans 11, now he is telling us what he understands of what's going on according to God's plan. He, he says, I don't want you to, this to be a complete mystery to you, right? so that you'd be wise in your own eyes. He's unfolding certain things, but... At the same time, Paul does not understand the whole picture. If you look at 11.33, he confesses how unsearchable are his or God's judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? In other words, Paul acknowledges, I'm not God. And he's reminding the church in Rome, neither are you. If you expect to understand everything that God is doing, then your expectation is grossly misplaced. Because He is the Creator, and you are the creature. What Paul does understand is that even though many Jews are not responding 
to the message of Jesus, it does not mean that God has abandoned them. It does not mean that God is not at work. Even though most of Israel has rejected God's plan, God has preserved a number. You see that right in verse 7, that he is making sure that a remnant respond to him, just like Paul, who has responded to Jesus as well. But the question does, you know, you can't, you can't walk around the question, why? God, why couldn't you just show up to Israel like you did to Saul? Right? A nice appearance of glorified, resurrected Jesus on the Damascus road. Persuade them to believe in you so we don't have to wrestle with this rejection of Jesus. Why are we going down this road of rejection and preservation of a remnant when you simply could have articulated, demonstrated yourself in such a way as you did to Saul that would have meant the mass conversion of Israel? Why not? Doesn't that seem like a better way to go? Perhaps an easier way to go? Well, in, uh, in a very surprising way, in verse 12, Paul says that Israel's failure, her trespass, means riches for the world. In other words, in God's plan, the way God is working things out somehow, Israel's rejection of the Messiah has allowed the offer to go to the Gentiles, and so it is by virtue of Israel's rejection of Jesus that the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles have the opportunity to be included in God's plan. Not only that, but by extending God's grace to the Gentiles in this offer, it is intended to make Israel jealous so that God's grace will then in turn be extended again to Israel. So what we might look at and see, this is not as good as it could be. Why don't you just convert everyone? Paul says, no, this is God's intention. And as a result of Israel rejecting Jesus, which we think of as really bad, grace goes to the Gentiles. And then as a result of grace going to the Gentiles, grace will then come back around to Israel again. Paul, even in the midst of perhaps some degree of his own confusion, even in the midst of wrestling with all these truths and pouring over the Old Testament Scriptures to try to understand what God is doing, says, no, even in this I see grace. Even in, for what him had to be the hardest thing that he had to endure... Right? Remember in 9 how he cuts open his veins and lays out his heart for the opportunity that his brothers would be converted. Incredibly difficult for him. Even in this, he does not become bitter. He does not accuse God in it. He trusts in God's wisdom and he presumes the opportunity for grace in that which is difficult to understand. And the reality uh, is intended at least in one sense, to make us very humble. Right? Uh, Paul uses the analogy of an olive tree. He says, listen, this is what's going on. Israel has been cut off. Because they did not continue in God's kindness, they have not exercised faith, they tried to achieve things through law and works, and as a result, the Gentiles have been grafted in. Great. But keep in mind, if you don't continue in God's kindness, you can be cut off too. This is intended to make us very humble. Look at verse 22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise you too will be cut off, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. That's quite a warning. Do you ask yourself on a regular basis perhaps even an infrequent basis, 
am I running the risk of being cut off? Paul holds it out to you. If you're not asking it, why are you not asking it? Paul's saying this is a possibility. If you don't continue in kindness, if you don't continue in faith, you may be self-deluded. You may not know Christ at all, and you might be excised from the tree just as Israel was. If we presume on the grace of God to the extent that we excuse ourselves, we find ourselves in a very dangerous spot. And Paul desires for us to understand at least this about the mystery. Uh, even though the mystery is not fully explained. Right? Let's be frank to a degree. Romans 9 through 11 is in many ways exceptionally frustrating. It's a portion of the Bible that is difficult to get one's head around. It is a place, perhaps most in the New Testament, where God's sovereignty is emphasized. In chapter 9, Paul has written that God is the potter and humanity is the clay. And if God decides to make a vessel that is fit for destruction, that is intended for destruction, what business is it of yours? When does the clay get to say to the potter, don't make me like this? You don't get to say that. It's up to God. And here in 11, he makes it clear that Israel's stupor is part of God's doing. That he has blinded, in verse 8, his own people. Why is this difficult? Should we not expect that God is in charge and does what he wants? Isn't that part of what it means to be God? God gets to do whatever he wants. That's part of what makes him God. And yet at the same time, we expect God to act according to his character, according to how he reveals himself. And God tells us that he's love. God tells us that the chief motivator behind what he's done in Jesus Christ is indeed love. And when we read Romans 9 through 11, there's part of us that inevitably asks, and if you're not asking it, I would argue you're not really thinking about it, is God really loving? And that's a scary question. Is God, do I really understand God as I should? Is He really loving? Or in Romans 9 through 11, He seems just a bit not quite good. More precocious, more um, unpredictable then good. And so I have a decision to make, and you have a decision to make in Romans 9 through 11, and it's this, to wrestle with the Scriptures and presume that God, you will only understand a portion of God's character, and some of it is mystery, or to, to be alienated. Right? In any relationship, whether human or divine, if you're confronted with an aspect of the relationship that you don't like, you have a decision to make. You can move into the relationship, you can press in, and despite what is uncomfortable, despite what is alienating to you, you can still uh, exercise love and grow that relationship, or you can back away. You say, ah, this relationship demands a little bit more of me than I like. I don't like aspects of this person, and so we're going to keep arm's distance from one another. And this is very much the temptation in places like Romans 9 through 11. It's why many churches avoid it, and kudos to you for actually being willing to sit through it, because it's something with which we have to wrestle. Otherwise, if we start throwing out passages of Scripture, we inevitably inevitably come up with a God simply of our choosing, our making, rather than the one who has presented himself in holy writ. And so, one good question that I like to ask is, well, what is the alternative? Right? We're emphasizing God's sovereignty, that He is, He's moving the pieces on the board to a certain degree to affect a certain outcome. And if He's not doing that, then, 
the outcome necessarily isn't necessarily guaranteed, and the pieces can kind of move themselves, and that creates problems in and of itself, does it not? If God isn't really exercising a degree of control over things and moving things in a particular direction, then, my goodness, we're looking at a real crisis because Israel has said no to Jesus. And what if all of Israel said no to Jesus? And God, I guess, is scrambling to come up with a plan to try to move the story along despite all of Israel saying no to Jesus. But then you have to hold out the possibility that maybe everyone would have said no to Jesus. And do you think God would have hung himself on the cross with the potential that everyone might have said no? That seems like a pretty huge investment without any kind of surety that something might result as a result of it. Romans 9 through 11 reminds us of this tension that exists in Scripture that we have to be good at balancing. And when you're not good at balancing, it becomes even more frustrating. Your life becomes frustrating. And you become um, one of these terrible people who do a lot of blogging online and, and lead all Christians in terrible directions. So don't be that person. And you cannot be that person by holding in balance uh, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Right? This is what we're talking about. Holding it in balance. And Scripture holds it in balance in really actually a remarkable way. Um, and it's something that we can't exactly thread the needle on and resolve. But what happens then if you go too far in, in either direction? Big problems, right? If I say God is, is completely sovereign, everything that happens, He has dictated. And so I start to go in a direction and say, well, Adam had the choice, of course, initially, whether to sin or not, he chose to sin, and as a result of Adam's sin, all of humanity is cast into sin. And now everyone is born into sin, and there's nothing that they can do. Okay. Well, then, if I continue down this road that God is sovereign and has elected some but not others, that means that there are some people who are born into this world, and they're born into sin, right? You don't have a choice about that. The world is broken. And because they're not elect, they don't have a chance to repent either. So God has decided to punish them eternally for sins committed temporally that they had no choice whether or not to commit. Really? Don't you get a little bit of an ug when you think about God in that fashion? And yet, if you go down too far this road, that's oh, there's no human responsibility. God is just ultimately sovereign over all things. That makes God sound like a very interesting character. But on the other hand, you have the same problem if you go too far down the road of human responsibility. Well, after Jesus, people are, are free to respond to Jesus or not. That's what God did in Christ. And so everyone is responsible whether they say yes or no to Jesus and how they follow him. And you start to go down this road and realize, well, oh, so you actually aren't that bad off. You get to decide and you kind of participate in your salvation. And ultimately, your salvation hinges, hinges on your yes or no. So in a way, you really do affect your salvation. And then you start to ask questions like, very awkward questions like, well, okay, well, why did you say yes? And your neighbor said no. That's an uncomfortable question if you go down this road because there's really not a good answer to that. You start having to say, well, there's something in me that made me say yes and that sets you apart and that makes you really rather elite and set apart from the rest of the people in this world that if only they were smart enough or humble enough as you were to say yes, then they would have been in that camp, right? So either way we go down the direction of God's sovereignty or human responsibility, if we go too far, you end up in big problems. And this is what Paul's wrestling with in the course of Romans as a whole. In the beginning, he begins by saying, you know what? Everyone has a standard. 
The Jews have the standard of God's law, and the Gentiles have the standard of whatever law they adhere to, and everyone has failed. All humans are responsible. They have been condemned by their own failure to their own standard. Human responsibility. And by 9 through 11, you have Paul saying, and this is what God intended. It was the way things had to go for him to reveal Jesus and grace and forgiveness through him and extend it to the Gentiles. And you say, okay, well, how do we draw those things together in a nice, neat package? And we don't. Not this side of glory, anyway. And so we realize there's a degree to following God that is simply frustration. We are not permitted, we are not invited to know everything that, uh, that God does, that exists in the mind of God, everything that is unfolding that He is engaged in, and how silly it would be. You know, you, you can imagine a child who's going nuts. You know, a 12-year-old in a house says, I just want a play date. I want to go over and play with my friend. We're best friends at school. We have such a good time together. And my homework is done. And I've done all my chores. And you won't let me go play over there because you're mean. And mom and dad say no. And they don't tell you why. And you get so frustrated. And then you grow up only to learn that, yeah, the uncle that's being housed there isn't a very safe person. And in your frustration and your inability to conceive the possible reason why your parents wouldn't allow you to go in that direction, you realize, oh my goodness, thank goodness for their protection and for their decisions on my behalf that I would be made safe. And this is what children before our Heavenly Father, in which we must say, to some degree, I presume that God is doing things that are the way, ways that are good and loving because that is His character. And they are a benefit to his glory, and a benefit to his people. And Paul has worked this out, and he says really radical things in Romans 11, where uh, he starts to talk about all Israel being saved, and in verse 32, all being consigned to disobedience, that, all, uh, that God may have mercy on all. And again, I think Paul is beginning to, to work at mysteries of which he only knows a portion. And he decides to end chapter 11 both in praise and with a note of hope that God will do what God will do to the mercy of both Israel and the Gentiles. At a certain point in passages like Romans 9 through 11, I think we simply have to cry mystery. If we go down a road in which we try to answer every question and try to cross every T and jot every I, we end up in a place where we have deviated often from Scripture. We have gone too far, and then there are too many other passages which contradict the, the house that we have built on one or a few passages. And so, to a degree, we must cry mystery, and to a degree, I think we must always ask the question, if Scripture does not answer my question, is my question a very good one? Perhaps my questions need to be reframed based on what Scripture is more intent on clearly answering like on how I am supposed to exist in this world and what I should be busy about rather than figuring out the mysteries of God. And in this, I was moved and appreciated and think there is no coincidence that Paul chooses the story of Elijah. Elijah, who cannot conceive of what God is doing, who is empty as a result of pouring himself out for God's purposes. God meets him and And when he meets him, he feeds him and clothes him and lets him sleep. 
And then he or doesn't clothe him. He feeds him and gives him water, lets him sleep. Then he feeds him and gives him water again. He restores him physically. And then you have these massive presentations of power. And God's not found in any of them. It's the soft whisper that comes at the end in which God reveals himself and begins to answer some of his questions and begins to offer him relief. And so often when we ask the big questions, we're really begging God to demonstrate something amazing and powerful and glorious like fire and earthquake and wind that these grand mysteries might be solved before our eyes. And instead, I think it is the reality in which for Paul that more often God meets us in the quiet whisper and reveals to us what we need to know that we might be faithful in the moment. And it's this that is the reason that Paul ends for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray just that. Our gracious God, we praise you because you are strong and sovereign. And there is no question that you will achieve your purposes. We pray that you would help us to be faithful in the purposes to which you have called us, rather than necessarily to um, to feel like we must thread needles, that even Paul only achieves a certain degree uh, in the exercise of threading that needle. We marvel at your mercy, that when we see something that surely looks bleak and surely looks like a lack of promises, and certainly even more so in the first century, we ask questions and we doubt and we think, what is, what is going on? And yet, let us hear Paul and remind ourselves that it is opportunity for your grace to be extended to the Gentiles, an opportunity then for your grace to be extended to Israel. And let us not take your grace for granted. We thank you for engrafting us into the olive tree. And we pray, Father, that we would be faithful to that which you have revealed so that we might not run the risk of being cut off from that very tree. And so we remind ourselves as we come to the table this morning that we are supported by the root, and we do not support the root. And so let us find our nourishment and our sustenance in the root who is Jesus himself. We ask it in his name. Amen.